I'm Karen Florin, and this is the Storyline Podcast. Today is a bittersweet day because I'm here with Paul Chaunier, who is retiring at the end of the week after more than 30 years at the day. Uh, 34 to be exact. Uh, came through the doors in 1987. And um, Paul has, has uh, agreed to talk about a few of his favorite stories uh, while he worked as a reporter here for about 20 years, and then we will move on and cover some of the highlights of his editorial page editor career. Paul, what's what do you have on your list there? Well, you know, it's it's. I was thinking the other day uh, that my career actually spanned six decades because I, I graduated in 1979 out of the University of Rhode Island uh, and went right into my first job up in Vermont, and I'm finishing up now in the early 2020. So, um, uh, quite a seen you know, dramatic changes in technology in the industry, uh, and um, you know certainly in in newspapers and and how they function and the challenges uh, you know they face. So it's it's it's. I think it's certainly been, you know, an interesting time uh, to be in journalism. One, because I, I, you know, I experienced it in its heyday business-wise, uh, but it's, it's really exciting to see the possibilities that uh, we, we couldn't have dreamt about, uh, you know, when I began uh, journalism. Uh, there was no such thing as a podcast, certainly, and there wasn't even any thought of, uh, that there would be any uh, format for to record information and and talk about issues and and give readers an easy uh, way to give their feedback uh, outside of a letter to the editor. So it's it's been a you know interesting time for uh, this career. And I think it's also brought um, us closer to our audience and and familiarized them with us. But maybe as we talk today, we can sort of dispel a couple of the myths that people have about editorial page editors, right? And um, sure. But I really would like to start with your career as a reporter because that was uh, very distinguished, Paul. Tell me about some of those favorite stories of yours and why they stand out and whether people, you still see people in the grocery store today that shake their fingers at you. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I came to the day, I said in uh, early 1987, they were on a hiring spree at that time. The the day for some of the old timers remembered uh, up to around that time, it had been an afternoon na- newspaper. Uh, at, and around that time was when the, the day was looking to expand its coverage area. And I had been working at the Norwich Bulletin and uh, was able, fortunate to get a, a job here, in part because they were, the day was opening a Norwich office. Uh, they were trying to bolster this new morning edition, and uh, I joined the staff at that time, and uh, I spent uh, several years, I actually think the it's been over 30 years, the, there's only been two reporters, I think, primarily covering Norwich for the day, and that was me for quite a few years, and then Claire Bissett has been there many years doing a great job, but I, I, I remember... Uh, you know, finally those those days in in Norwich uh, for the day, the visits to the uh, city hall and uh, meeting the clerks, and that was where uh, a, a reporter kind of got the buzz of what's going on in town, and you'd get the the inside information of uh, uh, what to look for and such, and uh, you know that that was great training grounds uh, 
for my future work as a reporter and you know ultimately as a, a editorial page editor is is that kind of grassroots coverage and that remains a bread and butter it's just something you're not going to get anywhere else uh, is you know professionally uh, written news about our local communities uh, and I think it's a great asset and um, it's something we have to I think retain because I think it's so fundamental to democracy because if you don't have some source of community news and information I don't know how people kind of make the judgments they need to make you know in a democracy uh, if, as far as elected officials policy and such I have a vague recollection of a of a story about the police that you worked on in Norwich. Um, can you talk a little bit about that one? As with any department, uh, frequently the police are called to a scene because a, a car has been in an accident or a car has been abandoned, and and you call a local wrecker service. They tow it away. That's some potential business for a local uh, garage, and. The departments, uh, I imagine it's still the same now, but at least then they had rotational lists. So it was very fair that everyone, when they came on the list, you hauled it away and maybe you got a clunker or maybe you got a car that's going to cost some considerable amount uh, to repair or, or such. And uh, the local garages were insisting that a, a couple of garages that were associated with uh, with top-ranking officials in the police department seemed to be getting the the cream of the crop, you know, if it was a Mercedes and such, uh, uh, it seemed like suddenly the connected uh, garage would rise to the top of the rotational list. So it was, it was a very kind of in-town uh, digging into uh, a, a potential corruption stuff and, and uh, digging into that. And uh, I remember I was uh, at a a garage for hours going over records and such of one of these garages claiming they felt things were not on the up and up and, and making their case. And I get back to the bureau and soon after the phone rings and uh, someone says, well, we know where you were all day. <laughs> and I said, well, how's that? He said, well, you know, with, with, the, with the local police and, you know, it would kind of be a shame if you got pulled over and you were found with something, uh, you know, I, I think you just be careful who kind of you associate who you listen to. And I said, you know, who is this? And of course, I got no information. And I went to my managing editor at the time and said, just in case anything comes up with me in Norwich, I just want to put this on the record. Now, and nothing did. And we, you know, we, 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 we I published the story the day, the day published the story. But that was, uh, uh, that was kind of, uh, and it's very sad and a little, little frightening. <laughs> when I got that call. It, it can be very intimidating, I think, to write uh, anything negative about police um, or public officials, but I think that you've always done it in a very professional and straightforward way. How do you go to the, you know, to the cop shop the next day after the story publishes, and, and how are you <laughs> received? Yeah, it's the nature of what we do here as, you know, as journalists, and I think you just... One, you better line up your facts straight. If you have the facts on your side, uh, you know that you know then you're good. I mean, we're we're human. That's going to be uncomfortable when you go kind of go back uh, into that environment, uh, of course. But but that's kind of the nature nature of the business. Um, I always uh, I always uh, kind of look forward to what what we might call a confrontational interview. If you've done investigative reporting, you gather up our information. At some point, you 
then sit down with the people you're writing about and, uh, you know, give them the chance to get their side of the story. But, you know, you should have your facts lined up at that point. And uh, really, at the end of the day, if you you just want to say you someone might it's going to be hard for them to say you've been unfair if you've done your homework and you've you've lined it all up and you know and that's and that's what we can't we have to be very careful especially when it's a an investigative type story was any what was the impact of that story were there any changes made to the way the um towing rotation was operated in the city of norwich the the changes were were fairly minor and i think I learned over the years that you can only you do your job as a reporter, and I was backed up by the editorial page, is what you sometimes see the news doing a good job, and then the editorial page will follow up with a strong voice. I was, you know, a reporter at that time, but our editorial page. But I recall, uh, I think the the chart the changes were fairly minor. Uh, there were continued denials. Uh, and it was sort of a lesson in in what we do that you, you you try your best, but it's not always dramatic changes. I mean, <laughs> there's there's local interests, and sometimes they're ingrained. And uh, our changes are often nuanced and gradual. I think it's an important role to play. They're not always as dramatic as 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 we would hope. You find sometimes that you can spend months and months and, and a lot of resources reporting something, and, and it seems like it gets received by the public as a big, so what, right? That, you know, I, that's, you know that, that is sometimes the case, you know. I, you know, on the other hand, a, a story that I also spent a lot of time digging into and, and was challenging from uh, the, the pressures that it brought was... Uh, reporting on the Millstone Power Station in the 1990s. They were owned by Northeast Utilities, and they had had some serious erosion uh, in their safety controls. These nuclear plants are built with several redundant safety measures uh, to make sure, and they'd been they had been allowed some of that erosion of those of those safety barriers. But more importantly, was uh, a lot of whistleblowers were talking to me, working inside, saying that management at that time, and again, let me emphasize, this, you know, looking back historically, I think the industry has learned a lot from, from what happened at Millstone, um, you know, were coming to me, whistleblowers, saying that uh, when the management didn't want to hear it when they'd speak up and say, we have an issue with this piece of equipment, or we have an issue with how this uh, protocol is carried out, um, if it meant that it was going to cost time, it was going to cost money. Uh, you may be labeled as a troublemaker, it didn't want to hear. So in that case, eventually, you know, the stories we were doing here at the day, the editorials were writing, got national attention. Uh, time Magazine picked up on it. Uh, and eventually they shut down for a time all three nuclear reactors. There were three at the time until they were satisfied uh, that they had adequate uh, employee protections. Uh, they addressed some of these technical issues. Um, so I, you know, I think then the other coin where I think our reporting and, 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 and editorial pushing really had a profound difference. And, and the lessons learned at Millstone really changed the whole industry uh, of their approaches. And they came to realize that it was in their interest to 
address these problems and nip them in the bud because then the, the plants keep operating and the, and the outages are actually fewer if you address the problems rather than try to, uh, to ignore them. So, you know, in that case, we think it was real change uh, resulted from our reporting. So what an incredible accomplishment um, that your reporting on that beat was, Paul. Um, tell me about the Utopia Project in uh, Norwich. Yeah, it was actually, you know, Norwich Hospital in the town of Preston, actually, though you Norwich know, Hospital is a small part of it. Uh, most people know it was a huge, like 400-plus acre a campus uh, that was developed when our um, addressing people with deve- developmental disabilities, people with mental illness, was to institutionalize them. And so the you know the Norwich Hospital probably is this massive campus at one point of kind of up to a, like a town in itself. Um, but by the uh, by the 80s, I believe the state was pretty much abandoning that model. This massive property was closing and pressed in the town. Uh, was left to, you know, what might become of this. The state had failed in its redevelopment efforts. The towns had give us a chance. And uh, this group came up, uh, led by a gentleman named Joe Gentile, that was going to construct almost what they were characterizing sort of a Disney World North, where it would have uh, uh, amusements and and some uh, housing and studios, uh, the the gentleman's uh, wife was an actress, and he brought some Hollywood types in to say what, how grand this would be. Um, and Preston was proceeding with with uh, a development agreement, and and within the development agreement uh, was a stipulation uh, that they did not have any other development projects that had had legal issues. Uh, lawsuits and such, and if they did, they had to disclose them so they could be evaluated in assessing their ability to do this project. And I, they were literally kind of reaching sort of the end where they were sort of finalized. Yeah, they they would be the, the preferred developer. They would be able to to go forward when someone uh, tipped me off that they in fact had a lawsuit in New York State. This is like 2006. So I. Went down to Manhattan and uh, and began digging through volumes of court records, and there was this uh, you know, one project. I think it was called the Gallery at Chelsea. Uh, you know, with accusations of money laundering and you know kickbacks, and there were a couple of gentlemen who had owned the property and they felt they got muscled out by Gentile's group. It was it was a, a mess and it, it had not been uh, disclosed. It, and we ran uh, a long uh, piece just shortly before the big meeting where they were going to decide whether to push forward. And, um, and you know, ultimately, and, they, and there were also reasons they just could not demonstrate they had the financing ability, but they had also violated this and it, it, to me it was amazing to me that they had an army of lawyers and no one had somehow found this lawsuit uh, but I was I was able to find it and 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 document it um, and I remember there was a meeting like immediately after our story broke by happenstance and that was interesting walking into that meeting 
Uh, the labor guys were not thrilled uh, we had broken that story because they were looking at this potential project uh, as a huge uh, construction, a job development, and, and uh, they were not happy with me, and they kind of made that known. Uh, I think ultimately it was some kind of a scheme. They, were gonna, they just wanted to get their towns into this vital property that was on the river across from Mohegan Sun Casino. I think they saw it as valuable, and however they could get to the finish line to be the developer, and then they'd figure it out, I think was what the real, in my opinion, uh, was what their real game was. I don't think they ever had the resources to do what they were talking about. They just knew they'd be in the catbird seat if they could kind of get the talons into it. So any other news stories before we um, talk about your your becoming the editorial page editor? I worked with Ken Tolson, who was uh, an editor uh, since retired, uh, from the day where we uh, looked into uh, allegations of a cult, King's Chapel was the name of that at the time that was operating in sort of the Norwich, Griswold, that that area. Um, and that that was sort of a different story for me because it was very personal. I heard the personal stories of people whose lives were really upended that uh, you know, bought into... Uh, really what amounted, we felt we documented was sort of a, a form of mind control. Uh, so it was a little different. You're not dealing with um, uh, policy issues or corruption. It was a very personal level. And some of the people, you know, live, I, I was living in one of the towns where uh, this was going on. So, um, you know, that, that was kind of a story I was very proud of um, and, and, and kind of very difficult. And we won actually a, a national award uh, from a group that tries to uh, uncover uh, and, and, and let people know about the abusive nature of some of these cults. Uh, so you know, they actually began that award after the Jonestown massacre, uh, but thousands died. Um, I think it was Honduras uh, drinking Kool-Aid. Uh, the Reverend Jones, and they started this uh, organization to try and uncover cults and what, the abuse they can have, and that was um, that was very you know, flattering. We won that national award for for our reporting on this particular one. That's that's amazing. And just to go back a little bit, um, the power of Google tells me that um, Jonestown and Jim Jones was in Guyana. Somehow along the line, you acquired this real love of politics. Um, <laughs> And you were an absolutely perfect fit when there was an opening for editorial page editor. Um, can you talk a little bit about that transition? I had uh, actually uh, applied some years before I, I was able to win uh, or, or be appointed the editorial editor. Uh, uh, Maura Casey, we actually had three editorial writers, and, and one of them was Maura Casey, who had been hired by the New York Times to work on in their editorial department, and I actually applied for her job. Uh, there was always there was also Greg Stone, the deputy editorial page editor, Morgan McGinley, the editorial page editor, who had uh, been doing a great job for years in that position. Uh, but then the newspaper decided they weren't going to fill Moore's position. Uh, it was unusual for a paper our side to have three uh, editorial uh, editors. Um, and so things kind of just went on hold, and then they had an early retirement. Both Morgan and Greg uh, accepted that early retirement, um, and I was asked, "Would I be interested 
uh, in in renewing my uh, application uh, for either the editorial page editor or, or uh, deputy editorial page editor, and uh, and and I said, yeah, I definitely was. In fact, I would I would just for the fun of it. It's how strange I am. Would sometimes write editorials on topics just for my own gratification, uh, just to see, uh, you know, if I was good at it. Um, uh, cause I, yeah, I just, it, it's something I aspire to for a while. I, I, you know, I think it's important. Uh, well, news has one role to objectively, uh, present both sides. Uh, I think there also is an important place for opinions to clash and that's, uh, that's the editorial page. So I was I was fortunate enough. Uh, Gary Fruge was publisher at the time, and he hired myself as the uh, editorial page editor. And Ann Baldelli, uh, since retired, who uh, had even a longer uh, career here uh, at the day, uh, was hired or, or appointed, uh, promoted to uh, the associate editorial page editor, and and uh, the two of us worked together uh, for several years in that that capacity. By the way, I've been lucky enough to work with some of these. These are the greats, you know, uh, Morgan McGinley and Greg Stone and Maura Casey, and then you, um, Paul and Ann. Can you take us behind the scenes of the formulation of uh, an, an editorial and um, maybe talk about one where that you had to write, even though you didn't necessarily agree with what uh, you had to write? at least once a week, uh, the editorial board uh, gets together for a meeting. Uh, currently, it's myself, uh, Tim Dwyer, our publisher, uh, Lisa McGinley, who was formerly, uh, formerly a deputy managing editor here at the day, uh, since retired but still uh, active in, in contributing some things for my pages. She's on the editorial board. Uh, Erica Moser, who's uh, a reporter uh, uh, on our staff, uh, uh, contributes to that, and usually uh, Sassy Larinetta, our, our um, managing editor, uh, though she's on a medical leave right now, she's normally uh, on the uh, the editorial page. She'll be returning, I'm sure. Um, we meet to kind of discuss the issues of the day and formulate uh, what we might want to advocate for and what position we're going to take. Uh, ultimately, the decision of what that opinion will be is for the people who are not part of the newsroom. That would be myself, uh, the publisher, Mr. Dwyer, and and, and Lisa McGinley. Uh, uh, we get input, uh, some information, uh, you know, from the members of the newsroom that contribute to the discussion, but they really don't ultimately make that decision of what the editorial should say, what the highlights would be. Uh, and then ultimately the writing of the editorial is, is up to me or... Um, you know, I hire a couple of people with journalism experience to write our editorials, and uh, Lisa being one of them, and and I'll fill them in on what we want to say and such, and then do the final edit and talk about the issues that the editorial uh, board wanted to raise. And then you begin to um, sort of lay out a pattern of where you stand on certain positions. So uh, if there's breaking news, I, I may not have to revisit with the editorial board. I know what our position has been on this topic, and you know I may feel free to uh, write that uh, ed an updated editorial. You know because I know the position we've taken and where we want to stand, and we try to be consistent. And uh, 
And if we make a change, it's because we've talked about and decided we were wrong or we've learned new information. We want to uh, change where we stand. It's not because we kind of just waffling from one uh, one point to another. Um, you know, the cases where uh, the editorial board has taken kind of a you know, 180 different position than I have there, they're probably rare. It, it, it's more... It's more nuances uh, that maybe a point I thought we should stress. And after hearing from any, everyone on the board, I, I say, oh, yeah, I think where you're coming from can make a stronger argument than what I was going to emphasize. So, uh, but there are occasions where uh, a vote is taken and, uh, um, and it's different than what I recommended. The, the board has a different feeling. And, and then I'll, I will uh, you know, write the editorial uh, to the best of my ability, presenting the position we, we take, even though I didn't agree with it in the debate. And I sort of make it akin to an attorney. Right? If you're, you're an attorney, you have a client, uh, maybe a, a defense attorney, and uh, you, you may not be thrilled with this person you're defending, but you have sort of an ethical obligation to put the best case forward on behalf of that client. That's your, And I sort of have the same position in those rare instances where I sort of have an ethical obligation to put the best foot forward and actually find it sort of interesting and challenging um, from an intellectual point of view uh, to just do the best I can. I have been getting this question a lot as I've started writing more about trust issues and columns and, and things like that. Have people ever asked you your political affiliation and have you and how have you answered them? Uh, yeah, I'm unaffiliated. I don't. I don't uh, have a political affiliation, which is a real disadvantage in in Connecticut because uh, we have closed primaries. So you have to sit out the process uh, essentially as a voter because we're also voters and you know, we're we're citizens outside of these professional jobs. Uh, and you can't, you know, if you're unaffiliated, you can't vote, which we've advocated. A, should change. We think unaffiliated should be able to pick a, one party or another to participate in during the primaries. Um, so, um, uh, you know, I don't have a, a party uh, affiliation. Um, uh, at the national level, we've we've largely, during my time, endorsed uh, Democrats for major office. Um, but frankly, we just feel they've had the more practical... Uh, ideas for moving the country forward, which doesn't mean we agreed with everything. That's certainly not the case, or we haven't criticized them, which I also find surprising. It's we'll, we'll endorse someone, they'll get elected, and then they'll do something we think is a, a a bad idea, and we'll criticize them, and 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 I'll get comments from people, or they'll comment on the story. Well, you endorsed him, and now you're saying he's right. well. Yes, you know we didn't. Say, we didn't like it, it's almost tribal these days that once you like back someone, then you better back them through, you know, all ups and downs. And, and, and I don't think that's the way it should work. You know, I think uh, you should be a little open minded. And even though you voted for someone, you might say, well, I voted for you. But boy, I think this is a lame brain idea that you're pursuing now. I, I think we've lost some of that. It's so we people break down into tribes uh, and, and, and on the local and state level, we've. Uh, maybe endorse slightly more Democrats, but we've endorsed plenty of Republicans too, because we again 
uh, just felt they had, you know, some of the better ideas or we needed some balance in governance. And it's, you know, important to have that balance. I think that's, that's good for a better product in the end, if people are willing to compromise, which unfortunately we've seen an erosion of that willingness to compromise, uh, you know, particularly in Washington, not so much, uh, at the state level as much and, and certainly not at the local level, but, you know, at the national, that's been one change that's been unfortunate during my uh, arc of my career. Okay. And another thing that I've seen and admired was Paul Chaunier going out to a gun range and, and <laughs> shooting a gun as you formulated opinions about, uh, you know, Second Amendment issues. Yeah. In the, in the wake of Sandy Hook, we were very much for a gun reform. We were in favor of a ban on the sale of assault rifles in the state, grandfathering those who already own them. Um, and in the course of, you know, these editorials and discussions, and I also would appear weekly on the Lee Elsie show, a conservative talk show in the area to kind of engage with the public and to, you know, promote what we do in the day.com and to kind of reach to that audience, uh, um, who, who might feel we kind of lean too much one way. I want to make sure I engage with them. And out of the course of all that, uh, a gun advocate, I think he's a f- former, maybe continuing state trooper, I forget, said, well, do you own any guns? Do you know the first thing about guns? And I had to admit, no, my knowledge is from what I read and such. And he said, well, would you come on out if I, you know, I'm professionally trained and you can fire a few different guns and you can see why we think it's so important uh, to have these weapons and uh, defend our homes and such. And I said, sure, I'd be willing to do that. I guess that would help me be a better informed and we went out to some uh, place in the woods and we fired handguns and assault uh, semi-automatic assault weapons and shotguns and it was it was interesting and and but what it convinced me is like man there's no reason any civilian <laughs> should have one of these weapons in their possessions because this is really easy with one one lesson, now I could take this thing and walk uh, into any place and kill a lot of people. And I I just learned it took me, you know, they're not hard to operate. They're incredibly lethal and easy to, you know. And so I guess he thought it would kind of persuade me like, oh, yeah, you're right. People need these guns. It persuaded me quite the opposite that we were right on, <laughs> that there's no reason that civilians, and I still convinced you know, I, I want the army to have this stuff and our law enforcement, but boy, these things are lethal. Is <laughs> what I found out. Uh, Paul, what are your plans for retirement? Well, at first, I think I I, I just want to um, kind of de-stress. Uh, eventually, Ann left the department when again another kind of budget decision and uh, returned to the newsroom 2012. So. For the last nine years, roughly, I've been putting out the pages by myself. Um, uh, it's a lot of workload. It's it's uh, and it, you know, there's a stress. I'm a, I try to be a perfectionist, <laughs> and um, you know, there's a degree to constant worry, especially when you have so much volume. And while we certainly have editors that help me out here, to a degree, I've been on you know on my own and and. Uh, and just, that's kind of, I can't be a time I wasn't a bit worried about, oh, you know, what is there might be a mistake that was made and such. And it's just, it's been a lot. So I think for time, 
uh, I just want to sort of distress and uh, get out on golf courses and uh, take some walks in the woods and just kind of you know, do that for a while. But but I'll look for opportunities down the line where I might uh, get back into commentary. Uh, and I don't know what form those may take, uh, but without having the, the weight of doing the entire operation, because uh, I still like it and I still feel it's interesting. I think it's important. Uh, the Connecticut Conference on Freedom of Information, which is a, a lobbying group to make sure uh, that we uh, have access to a transparent government and government documents, and they look out for any efforts to uh, whittle away at that. Uh, they've reached out to me, someone in that organization, so you know I may become active with that group. I just haven't had the time in my position at editorial page editor, so I'll be looking at that. So, uh, you know, I don't plan to totally disappear, but uh, I'm looking forward to a little time, a uh, little downtime. And finally, do you have any advice for the person who takes over your role as editorial page editor? Yes, you know, I, I, I think the, the important thing, is, it's, it's listening, and if you're going to uh, really be critical of some someone is to find that opportunity uh, to hear them out before you you make that decision and, and it may not ultimately change the position you've decided to take but it might nuance it a little it might be more appreciative and acknowledging uh, what the other side uh, is thinking or what that individual has or it may not change it at all but I think there's an obligation to do that. And I, I found it interesting. I think I've gotten more uh, congratulatory uh, calls or wishes of goodwill, actually, from the Republican side, even though uh, ultimately we often did not agree editorially. I think a lot of the officials have appreciated, uh, one, that we would kind of understand their take on things before finaling, finalizing a position. I think that should continue. And also to give them the opportunity to write their own commentary and say why they disagreed with what we had to say and why they took the positions they've done. Uh, so, I, you know, I found that interesting. So anyone who continues in that job to really uh, fight that we have multiple voices on the page and uh, don't let it become sort of a one-sided venue, I think it, I find it important to, uh, to hear the different views, and I hope I hope uh, whoever succeeds me would would have the agree with that approach. The best of luck to you, and boy, have we admired your work here at the day. Well, thank you. You know, the day is a real special place. Anyone you might complain, and hey, you know, we do things I'm sure worth complaining about. But I tell you, look at uh, newspapers our size, and most places you'll be hard pressed to find one that covers the community as in depth and as well as we've done. Uh, so it's been a great place to. Uh, to work of the day and you know very proud of what we do collectively as as a team uh, and I'm you know I'm gonna miss those interactions with folks in the newsrooms and such it's 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 been a great a great career thank you thank you